Okay, tonight is Wednesday, June 9th of the year 2004. Tonight is Lessons of the Olive Tree or Lessons of the Jews. I mean, you could pick your title. Both are going to be accurate. As we get into the message, something that I wanted to encourage the body with, I thought about doing it in worship, but I wanted it on a CD. When you look at Israel from north to south, and I don't have a map there, but on your left, my right, those pictures... The one on the left is the southern por- or right rather is the southern portion of Israel. The one on the left is the northern portion of Israel. I'll refer to the south as Dead Sea and the north as Galilee just because they're major landmarks. If you could picture those two maps on top of each other, you all know what Israel looks like. Long, narrow, about 50 miles wide, almost 300 miles long. If you could divide Israel like a clock face, or for simplicity's sake, let's say we're going to divide it into fours. You draw one line north to south and one line east to west, splitting it right down the middle. What you would find is there are four fairly distinct uh, geographical areas. There is one where there's lots of rainfall. There's one where there's almost no rainfall. One where there's lots of crops. One where there's very few crops. It's four very distinct areas. But for the most part, the right side of that line would be the arid Area. You can kind of see that on these maps, huh? You see the topography is arid. Not as arid in the north as it is in the south, but, but arid. And the right side tends to be more of the desert region than the, south side, uh, than the left side, if you drew it. Because the left side is between the mountains and the ocean, and it's kind of a fertile valley plain. So if you were going to live, where would you want to live? Left side or right side? Left stage, right stage. You would want to live in the left stage, right? There are 350 cities that are mentioned as being within the borders of Israel during biblical times. 350 mentioned by name. There's more than that, but 350 mentioned by name. How many do you think were on the left side? We have 350. Do we have another guess? 325. Would it be fair to say everybody would say the majority would be on the left side? Right? That's, that's where I'd want to live. Only 50 were. 300 of them were on the right side. When God chooses the habitation for His people, He doesn't always put you where it's plenty. He doesn't do it. When Jesus, when Moses, when prophets, when men of God wanted to hear from God, they didn't go to the bustling city in the northwest corner of Israel. They didn't go to the most fertile valleys and plains where life was easy. They went to the still, small, quiet places of the deserts. God speaks to His people in adversity. He doesn't speak to you in plenty. Now, that's just land yap that I'm giving you. So if you're in adversity, be excited. That's where God speaks to you. That's where it happens. Incidentally, when you look at the origins of all of the prophets, they all came from right side. None of them came from left side. But that would be a whole other message, and I promise I'll teach that in and of itself at some point. Incidentally, do you know who did live on the left side? Philistines. And see, Israel would be up on the mountains looking down at the valley going, golly, their life looks good. they got all the fish they want. They grow all the crops they want. They were always tempted. And do you remember that in Bible times, sometimes on the high places, there would be foreign altars? Why do you think they're on the high places? You'd climb up that mountain. You'd look. You'd say, well, God of the Philistines must be doing pretty good for them. Maybe I'll put a, a Philistine God up here and we won't tell anybody about it. We'll say it's to God. In fact, the Israelite houses that were on the left side, when you excavate them today, you know what you find buried in the center of the house? 
under everything? Little idols. You know, we don't know if this really works or not, but hey, it seems to be working for them. We'll bury it in the house. We won't tell anybody in Israel. That happened. That happened. Now, I'm not saying that to say the Jews are wicked people. The truth is, all of us have seen things in the world that we coveted, and we buried a little idol in our heart, you know. In fact, some of it's not so buried. You turn on the TV and they say, you want that drug dealer's car? You know? Are you waiting for the wealth of the wicked to be stored up for the right? All they're doing is burying the world's idol in their heart. My treasure is in the kingdom that is to come. I don't want it now. I don't want what the world has now. If I had it, I probably wouldn't serve God, but the poor are rich in faith. So I'm proud of you if you can be extraordinarily rich, be a lottery winner and do good in Jesus. Most people can't. I don't think I would. I'm big enough to say that. I don't want it. I can see just from the geography of Israel that God chose His people to live where there would be some adversity. Now, let's, let's be honest. The whole land is flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. He didn't, didn't put them in South Louisiana. <laughs> you know, he, he put them in the land of milk and honey. But in, within that land, He chose for them to settle the hardest places. I just thought that was worth pointing out. Okay, tonight we're going to do lessons from the olive tree. Is that good? Y'all like those little kind of facts? You'll learn them. Okay, lessons from the olive tree. There's a real difference between the way that Greeks and Jews think. Now, you know in the New Testament when the Bible speaks of Greeks, it's speaking of everybody who is a goyim, everybody who is one of the peoples of the world other than a Jew. Why? Because in the 300s B.C., Alexander conquered the world. The world was made to speak Greek, and so it became like a, not a colloquialism, but more of a euphemism to speak of everybody outside Israel as Greek, because most of the world was Greek. And in fact, the Romans came along, conquered all of the other empires, but they adapted much of the Greek influence. Today, we see Roman influence in our government. We see Roman influence around us. We also see Greek influence, and one of the strongest ways you see that is in our thought processes. Our democracies, our rational thought processes. When we identify with people like Plato and Socrates, they weren't Jews. You know, they, their line of thinking descends from the Greeks. It's important to understand, and tonight's whole message is going to be to help you understand, then apply, that there's a difference between the way that Greeks think, which is us, and the way that Hebrews think. Neither one, and this is very important, neither one is right or wrong. God made us all unique. In fact, Sunday's message is going to be on the uncut stones in an altar and why they're uncut, why each one is absolutely, totally unique, different than all of the others. God wanted it that way. He wants you to think the way that you do. But you do need to understand that the writers of the Bible didn't think like you do. Does that make sense? Okay. 1 Corinthians 1.22, we're going to see Paul just allude to this. It's not Paul's teaching topic. I'm taking a scripture out of context, and you can shoot me later. Okay? But it is important to see that he mentions it. 1 Corinthians. Yeah. No. Hebrews think another way. That's, I'm going to illustrate it. Because they're Hebrews and the writers of the Bible were Hebrews, they thought differently than Greek people do. Sometimes you see in the book of John, since he's writing to the believers worldwide, he explains their thought for that reason. The book of Matthew, for instance, written mostly to the Jews, doesn't. Not at all. Takes it for granted that you know it. There's a phrase. You ever heard straighten in a gnat, swallow a camel? 
You know, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't appear in any of the Gospels except Matthew. They understood it, and it's not explained. To us, that sounds like the strangest thing. Well, I'll teach you all what that means tonight. But to me, to hear that, I think, man, that makes very little sense. We are taught in our thinking to be descriptive. And I hadn't planned to do this, but imagine that I'm holding up a coffee cup, right? Or, or a water bottle, but we'll just say coffee cup, any item. Say, so, hey, y'all, just, you tell me about this. What is it? If I ask you what is it, your responses would be something along the lines, it's blue. It's, you know, about four inches tall. It's uh, a coffee cup. It, you know, and, and they would be descriptive in nature. To illustrate the way that Hebrews think differently, if you ask a group of Jewish people, especially in the time of Jesus, what is it? They would say, well, it's a container that holds water. It's a container that could hold coffee. It's something that you can drink. They describe things by what they do. We describe things by appearance. We look for wisdom in descriptions. They look for wisdom in function. Now, that may seem kind of foggy. I'll make it clear. Here's how Paul said it. 1 Corinthians 1, 22. Jews demand miraculous signs, and the Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, the phrase that we're picking up on here and just robbing right out of it, removing it from its text, which is a big no-no, something I teach against all of the time, but I'm doing tonight for the purpose of illustration, is Greeks look for wisdom. What do Jews look for? A sign. Probably the most Jewish book you can think of that we know the author of is James. And I, I only exclude Hebrews because we don't know the author of it. Okay? For, for the sake of example, let's just say James is one of the most Jewish books you can think of. When in fact the whole Bible is Jewish. I mean, the Jewish people gave us the preserved Word of God. They were the human conduit for the Messiah. And they were the nation that would hold the promises of God. They did all three of those things. But, so the whole Bible is Jewish. But let's start with James. Does James emphasize belief more or action more? Action. In fact, so much so that when Paul's writing, some people, in fact, the Baptist church that I grew up in, taught that Paul and James disagreed with each other. That Paul thought you needed to believe only while James thought you needed to do something. Now, I know they didn't disagree with each other, but they were writing to different audiences. The Greeks wanted to see a logical, uh, linear type order of events. You remember Paul stood before the Areopagus, Mars Hill. Areopagus, Mars Hill, y'all know where that at, that's at. We're talking about Athens, the center of Greek learning. They listened to him as long as his points were logically in order. But the moment he skipped to the resurrection of the dead without explaining why somebody needed to raise to the de- from the dead, they all began to object and said, what is this babbler trying to say? Go back and read that. He gets it in order logically. God did this, so this happened. Then this, this... And at the moment he breaks from logic, they ignore him. They don't believe him. They don't want to listen to him anymore, except a special few. That's because our Greek minds are trained for this kind of linear, unbroken line of reasoning. The founder of Bridges for Peace tells this story, and I've told it a couple of times since I've been back, but it'll help illustrate it. He said when he was in Israel in 1976, a woman said, you know, why are you here? He said, well, Bridges for Peace is a Bible-believing organization based in Jerusalem that has been established 
to build bridges between the Christian and Jewish community through practical deeds expressing God's kindness and love and mercy. She says, this is very good, but what do you do? And he realized right then they think differently than we do. When she asked why he was there, who he was, he told her what he believed. She wanted to know what he did. One is Greek, the other is Hebrew. Hebrews want to know who you are, what something is, by the way that it acts. Whereas Greeks, we want to know what you believe. We want to know whether you make sense, whether you read. Now, neither one is right or wrong. You just need to understand both. If you don't, you get really fouled up in the Scripture. We tend to look for logic, for wisdom. Hebrews tend to look at function and meaning. Neither is right or wrong, but we need to be aware of both. You all remember Sunday, and some of you weren't here Sunday, we looked at the tzitzi, or tzitzis. I can't even say it. It's depending on where you read it. It's T-Z-I-T, T-Z-I-T, or it's T-S-I, T-S-I. The sound is tzitzi, something along those lines. They're the four tassels on the edge of the garment. When you're Greek and you're reading about the woman that comes up and touches the hem of Jesus' garment, we think, wow, what was the deal? She touched the hem of his garment and got healed. You know, the medieval church thought that his garment must then be magical. You know, in our reasoning, especially in the word of faith arena, they'll teach you that Elijah's bones had healing power stored in them because somebody touched Elijah's bones and they were healed. They'll teach you that Jesus' clothes was stored with healing power. That's Greek. That's Greek in our thought. We think, well, the only logical explanation is that power had to, had to reside somehow in this and then transfer to that. To the Hebrew, they hear both of those stories and they say, wow, well, what was Jesus' garment for? Not what was it. What was it for? What did it do? Well, his garment was a prayer shawl. Numbers says every Jew had to wear it. It had to have four tassels on the corners. I just taught this, so you all forgive me that I'm running through it again. But the tassels were symbolic of God's authority descended to them. So when the woman touched the edge of his garment, the tassel, the tzitzi, or tzitzi, however you want to say it, the tassel, (laughs) she was submitting to God's authority because she understood what it was for. It's not a battery. It's not storing his healing power. Her act of faith was in submitting to his authority. Do you see how, though, if you don't understand the Hebrew thought, you can get screwed up there? Or fouled up, rather? (laughs) Same thing with Elijah's bones. Why would touching Elijah's bones be important? Is it because there's something special about his bones? No, it's because what they represented. This guy had the power of the resurrection and his faith in him. Okay, that, Elijah's bones is a whole other subject, and that's much harder to prove than the other, and I don't know why I went there, but I did. Matthew 23:24. we'll look at the straining at the gnat. The straining at the gnat will give you a good place to kind of begin to understand how they think and why they think that way. And then tonight's lesson, remember, is going to be the olive tree. Anybody have that complete Jewish Bible in here with them? I don't have any idea what it says, but if you would just check it as I read, I'm curious. I wondered about the tassel of the garments, and I meant to look last week, and I didn't, if they wrote out tzitzi, or how they wrote it out. But we're, we're not there. Uh, we're in Matthew 23. And I don't want to cover this because I very much want to get to the olive tree. But in the beginning of Matthew 23, there's this rebuke. 
And uh, Jesus was, re- well, the whole Matthew 23 is really a rebuke. But notice in verse 5, just since I was on the topic of the tassels, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. What on earth does it mean that a phylactery is wide or that a tassel is long, and why is that important? Without oversimplifying this, the Greek, we look at it and we say, wow, it's wider. That has to symbolize something, or you look for the logic in it. The Hebrew goes, wow, what's a phylactery do? A phylactery was something that was bound on their hands and a box on their head that was supposed to remind them of God's Word. What does it do? It reminds you of God's Word. So why would theirs be wider? They're trying to show everybody that they're wearing God's Word around. They're trying to show everybody that God's Word is right there before them. And Jesus is saying this in a critical manner. Why would their tassels be long? God said make tassels. And He said why to make tassels. But why would theirs be long? Because they represented authority. And they were trying to show their authority was more than everyone else's. You see? And that opens it up to you. Now, in our charismatic realm, we've gotten somewhat accustomed to this because we understand shadows and types. We're looking and we know sometimes you go beyond just the plain logic of the text for a more mystical meaning. Jews understand that too. But if you're taught to look at function first, a lot of times it's not all that mystical of a meaning. You you know what I mean? you, You don't have to pray and hear from the Holy Ghost to reinvent the wheel to tell you the tassels had to do with authority. Because you know after studying the culture, that that's what it represented to them and that they look at things in form of function. And so when Jesus said this, he was criticizing the function, not the length of the tassel. Got me? None of that has anything. I mean, we weren't teaching on that tonight, but I I wanted you to know it. And I imagine there's going to be lots of messages like this. Okay, so there's more than one. And how do they spell it? T-Z-I. 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 Z-Z. See, <laughs> you see, I don't speak Hebrew yet. Huh? Yet. I know the most important word in Hebrew. This should get on the CD for everybody. Shek it. I mean, shut up. Close your mouth. <laughs> I can speak fluent Hebrew. If you say shalom, it's hello. It's also goodbye. You say it twice, it means you mean it a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, tell us. That is a prayer shawl. Yeah. They still use the same name for prayer shawl, which I can't pronounce. It's uh, They say it in English, Talitina, T-A-L-I-T-N-I-A. It was not a prayer shawl originally. It was literally their garments, never to be off. Some Jews in Israel still wear that today. It sticks out the corners of their belts, and it's worn under their clothes. God wanted it very out in the open, very plain, so that they would see it and remember it all the time. Uh, The law was a very liberal thing, and it was not wrong. It was to teach righteousness. You need to get this through our heads, because I've not always had this straight. The law is not bad. The law is not wrong. It's true that it constrained the people. It's true that it pointed out sin. But the principles taught in it are righteous. 
You don't, you don't have to worry about eating something that's unclean now, but the principle that God calls some things clean and unclean are taught to you through the law. So if the law says to put a mezuzah on your door, you don't have to do that because we were never under the law. You don't have to go be a Jew now that you're a Christian. But you can learn from that. That's no different than taking your Bible and nailing it to the door to remind you to live by it every time you go in and out. Could that be legalism and be a... A self-righteousness? Sure. Could it be done pure-hearted? Absolutely. I bet if your big old Bible that all of you have was tied around your neck, on your forehead, on your arms wrapped up, and was hanging from the four corners of your garment, you'd be less likely to be ugly to somebody in line at Piccadilly, wouldn't you? Yeah. When we wear our Christian T-shirts and our Christian bumper stickers, does that not in some ways do the same thing? Can it be pharisaical? Absolutely. I've seen it pharisaical. Does that mean it's all wrong? No, it can be done pure-hearted. So can the law. But if you cling to it as a legalistic means of righteousness, Paul says you're cursed. So nobody in here should go become a Jew. Okay? Sunday, I'm going to teach on that. We're honoring the root because we are the grafted-in branches. We're learning about the root, about the system of thought, about the heritage that we have. I will not expect Jews who come in here and at some point believe in Yeshua to become Gentiles. But by the same token, I do not expect Gentiles to go become Jews, and I'll be disappointed in you if you do. If next Sunday you all have on kippahs or running around blowing shofars and pronouncing every word in some butchered Hebrew to impress me, I'll be pretty disappointed. If you go home, get on the Internet, and look to see if one drop of your blood somewhere in your lineage happened to be Jewish, I would be very disappointed. Your heritage is in Christ. Your goyim. You're Gentiles. And if you're not, you thought you were, and that's okay. You know? Our, our, who we are comes with our identity in Christ, not our bloodline. All right, now we're back on task in Matthew 23, starting in verse 23. How about that? Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Mint, dill, cumin, what are they? Spices. If you had to take a tenth of everything that you owned... All right, we're in the whole household right now. We're going through with the ruler. We're taking a tenth of everything that they own to bring it to God. Would not the mint, the dill, and the cumin be some of the more insignificant things? Now, you've heard all the messages on how important seasonings were and how valuable they were. They were. But still, in comparison, a tenth of the spices that a man owned compared to his herds, compared to his house, compared to it's insignificant. It's small. They made sure that they got the insignificant, the small part, right. But they neglected the more weighty matters. They got the part right that everybody could see. Them bringing their tithes into the house. But did not get the part right that only God sees. Love, mercy, faithfulness. Okay? Now we know how to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. That helps you explain the camels and the gnats. But if you didn't have that, and you were Hebrew instead of Greek, as you looked at this, you would look at it according to function. What's a gnat? 
An annoying little bug. Anybody have any idea how many feet it has? Twelve. Six. No. Two. No. No. Nobody is getting that right. Judah, I would think, how many legs does a fly have? No. I would have guessed four. Four. Somebody turn to Leviticus 11, verse 20. Leviticus 11, verse 20. When you get there, read it. Anybody, somebody, help me. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Come on now. 11, verse 20. Anything that is an insect that swarms, that goes on four legs, is detestable. Unless, of course, it hops on the ground like a grasshopper, and he makes that exception, or like a locust, and he makes that exception. But if it's winged and it swarms, and it has four legs, it's detestable. It's non-kosher. Now, you may not have known that a gnat was non-kosher, because, unfortunately... We don't study the Old Testament like we should. We all come from a church that studies the Old Testament more than any other in its town. And you know what? Still not enough. The Old Testament makes up two-thirds of the Bible. It ought to make up two-thirds of your study. I want you to consider something for a minute without stoning me. The New Testament was not codified. We know what codified is? I didn't say codex. I said codified. <laughs> codified. What is codified? Somebody help me out. What's codified? It's brought together. It is assembled as a book and stamped with the church leadership. Do you know when the New Testament was codified? After the year 300. What? That means that all of Paul's letters, all of Peter's letters, all of the letters to the church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, were not assembled in one book and officially stamped with an approval that this is the New Testament until almost 300 years had passed. So what did the new church study? What did the early church look at? When they say that they were studying the Scriptures, what were they reading? It was not a Gideon's New Testament. What was it? It was the Old Testament. The early church studied the Old Testament, and these were letters that came in to help them understand the concepts that they were getting out of the Old Testament. This was the cliff notes. This was the supplement to the book. Does that make sense? It was the supplement. It was not the book. It was the supplement to the book. I'm not lessening the Scriptures. Peter calls Paul's letters Scriptures. They are. They're absolutely the Bible. But we make a huge mistake to say we're a New Testament church. Yeah, we're, we're a New Testament church. Well, that, that's great, you know. Does that, does that mean that none of the promises to the patriarchs are given to you? <laughs> you know, what, what does it mean to be a New Testament church? If what it means is you're trying to be like the church in the New Testament, then read the Bible they read. It was the Old Testament. Old even kind of gives the commentation it's not needed anymore, huh? Maybe we should just refer to it all as the Scripture and not see a division between them. You know, because there's really not supposed to be. Now, if you were a student of the Old Testament and you didn't have the New, do you think you would have known that four-legged creatures were detestable to God if they swarmed? Well, of course. This was the Constitution of Israel. 
You, you can't grow up there today and not know that if you never read a Bible. You know why? It's against the law to import them, to eat them, to have non-kosher food of any kind. I did find some lucres, though. While I was in Tel Aviv, I went into a flea market. There were some Vietnamese in the back corner that had a pig. And they had killed the pig, and they were selling pork. <laughs> yeah, got to love it. There's slackers everywhere, which is good because I like to eat pork. Okay, gnats and camels. Gnats, a four-legged creature that swarms. It's an insect. It is unclean. Do camels have split hooves? No, they have feet. Camels don't have hooves. They have toenails on their hooves. When you look at them, it's a pad, and they have individual components to their feet. As they step, the pad spreads out. There's even an air cushion in there. I mean, and it makes them very sure-footed animals. They chew the cud, but they don't have split hooves. So it's a non-kosher animal. So when Jesus says you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel, first of all, when we're looking at function here, we're talking about animals that are not kosher, okay? Animals that are unclean. So they work to strain out the very smallest unclean animal, but make no effort to strain out the largest unclean animal. The place where they were standing, where this was going on, wine was very important in Bible days. Everybody liked to drink it, much like they do still there today. In the southern part of the United States, it's the only place on the earth it's not okay to drink wine. And it is here. But in any case, they would take their vats of wine, put a sheet of mesh over it, and pour it into another vat. Do you know why? Anytime you have something that is sweet, gnats try to get in it especially before the days of air conditioning and freezers and all of those things. So they took great care in front of everybody to strain out the smallest gnat because they didn't want their wine to be unclean. But to make no effort, Jesus said, you are working to strain out the smallest little unclean thing. And it's just like you're swallowing the biggest unclean thing. When you learn according to function, that makes all the sense in the world what he was saying to them. But if you just look at it from an outside perspective without putting it in any of its context, it makes no sense. Strain at gnats to swallow camels. Did they literally swallow camels? Of course not. It was a figure of speech based on the function of the animals. Does that make sense? Okay, I think everybody got that. Now we're going to get into the text. and I'm going to have to go back and edit that one statement. Yes, Judah. Gnats are little flying creatures like bugs. And there, they hurt. When they bite you, you know it. Tiny little thing, and it bites you, and it's like a horsefly. I hate them. No fun. Okay. In our serving God, we need to focus on the majors. We need to look at love. We need to look at integrity and faithfulness, bearing fruit, those kind of things. We need to avoid the minors. How about this? Here's a gnat for you. Disputable matters of doctrine. You know? I don't really care whether you dunk somebody or you sprinkle somebody. What difference does it make if a man's heart is right? I don't care what color the carpet is in your church. Whether you like to kneel or stand when you pray. None of that makes any difference. That's a gnat that you're working to strain out and swallow in a whole camel. We need to be careful that we don't have a magnifying glass on everybody. They can't be a Christian, they smoke. They can't be a Christian, they drink. What if they're showing all the love that Jesus would? What if they're showing all the faith in the world and their cultural norms are just different than you? 
I can tell you right now, European men's cultural norms don't fit mine. And it would be very easy to judge them according to the outward appearance. I saw guys that, to me, looked queer. I mean, in their outward appearance, to me, they looked effeminate. And immediately I wanted to make that judgment. And then as I got to know them, I found out not only were they not, these men loved the Lord. See, you can strain at gnats and swallow camels. We need to not do that. Now, in the one case, the straining of the gnat was something that they were literally supposed to do. Much of our straining of gnats is things that aren't even really gnats. You know, we just make it that way. We focus on minor issues and we ignore the most important things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That gets all lost. We, we, well, how do you baptize? Does your wife cut her hair? Do you wear makeup? You know, all of those kind of things. We, that is gnats. We need to get rid of it. Now that we kind of understand the difference in the thought processes, let's go to a difficult scripture. There is no scripture that's difficult. It's difficult in getting us to understand it sometimes. Turn with me to Psalm 52, verse 8. Work her to death, Judah. Make her turn you. 52. Psalm 52, verse 8. This is a popular psalm. Imagine this, reading this, just looking for wisdom, right? But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I'm like an olive tree in the house of God. On my left, your right, there's a picture of a temple. That is the house of God in the day that this is being written. Actually, not that temple, but a temple. Imagine then that you read this scripture just looking for wisdom. What do you see? You see an enormous olive tree growing out of it, right? He's an olive tree growing in the house of God. Does that make any sense? Not at all. Why would you want to be an olive tree in God's house? Why not an oak or a ficus (laughs) or a banana tree? I don't know. Why not something else? Why that? A Hebrew reads this and immediately understands because they know the function of the olive. In fact, that's why this was chosen. We know from our teaching of shadows and types, olive trees represent Israel. They represent the natural nation of Israel. To the Hebrew that lives with olive trees every day, do you know what they are, though? They're food. You eat them. They're furniture. You make furniture out of them. They're lighting for your house because you make the oil out of them. They're healing for your body because God said, put the oil on their head and pray. Healing for your livestock. They're medicines. You put oil on their head and drives the mites out of the ears. All, all of those kind of things had very practical uses. You know what else olive trees were? Impossible to kill. I mean, aside from being a provider of light, furniture, food, shade, those kind of things, they grew anywhere. They're tenacious. In hot weather, cold weather, dry weather, wet weather, olive trees grow. You can go from the southernmost tip of Israel to the northernmost tip of Israel, and you find olive trees. On terraced mountains, you find olive trees. In the valleys, you find olive trees. By water and in arid places, you find olive trees. You have made me like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. You know what that means? That means that you have made me something useful in the house of God. I provide food. I provide shelter. I provide shade. You can't get me out of the house of God. 
You can chop me down and I'll grow back. You can burn me and I will grow back. You can try to dig me up and you will fail. I am tenacious about being in the house of God. You go back and you read this psalm in its context, and that's exactly what you'll find out he's saying. Other people are fleeting. The hopes of the wicked are fleeting. But I am like an olive tree in the house of God. You can't get rid of me once I'm there. Some notes about an olive tree. The root system can be 2,000 years old. Nice little coincidence, isn't it? What you're looking at may have been there for a year, but it's rooted in something that is thousands of years old. Just like us. Is that really like us, though? More like the Jews, isn't it? And we've been grafted into their olive tree. Ah, now we're starting to put it together, huh? See, when you look at it according to its function, you begin to understand. When you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you see they are the natural olive tree. We are wild olive shoots grafted into their tree. We say, wow, they were that tenacious thing that provided shade, that provided food, that provided light, that provided furniture, that provided everything, that grew in hot weather, cold weather, dry weather that grew everywhere and could not be killed. Has there been a group of people more persecuted on the planet than the Jews? They've been run out of every uh, European country through the Middle Ages. The, uh, think about this with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire tried to take their land and succeeded. Tried to take their religion. Destroyed the temple but didn't succeed. Tried to take their language. Oh, they oppressed it, but they didn't succeed. 2,000 years later in that land, the Jews are still there. Where are the Romans? They're an olive tree in the house of God. You know why they can't be destroyed? You know why they can't be cut down? Because God said they would endure forever. So as hard as you try, you wear yourself out. You're beating on an anvil. You know who's been grafted into that same spirit? We are. That's why you see it in the early church. That's why the more the early church was persecuted, and the early church was Jews, by the way, the more the early church was persecuted, the more it flourished. You know what you see around every olive tree you ever see? Little olive trees. They constantly multiply. I'm an olive tree in the house of God. Why? Because I can't be destroyed. I can't be taken out. I'm planted. And I will not go away. My roots go deep. I'm an olive tree in the house of the Lord. Why? Because I'm multiplying. Around me are little olive trees growing up. In fact, the Psalms say that. Look at Psalm 128, verse 3. I'll get to you in a second. I'm giving you just a couple scriptures. Take it. 128, verse 3. You can take this Bible study sometime and develop it on your own. It's a Wednesday night. I'm being cautious not to give you more than I think you can absorb. But I think this is worthwhile. Look at Psalm 128. We'll start in verse 1. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. So do I really want my sons to be like olive shoots? Lord, I want little green children that are skinny and that, you know, are hanging out around the table. Is that what you want? Well, look at it like a Hebrew does. What do olive shoots do? Well, you can't uproot them. You know what else? They look just like their parents. And they bear fruit in their season. And once it's been planted, it can't be destroyed. You can, you can run over them with lawnmowers. They grow back. Olive wood is tenacious. So what does it mean when somebody says, I'm an olive tree in the house of God? We discussed that. 
So what does it mean when it says, man, your kids will be like olive shoots around your table? It's important that we understand not only the Hebrew thought, but the Hebrew context of the Scripture. That's how we understand it. And you know what? It will enrich your life. Why do the Piros are going to have a baby? Why do they want the baby to be like an olive shoot? Well, number one, it'll look like them. They will bear fruit after their kind. Number two, once it's breaking the soil, you can't kill it. You can run it. It, it may get sick, but it'll heal. It may get broken, but it'll get fixed. It may be oppressed, but it will overcome. Am I describing a Christian? Am I describing a Jew? Am I describing an olive tree? Well, now we see why the Bible uses that as that sim, sim, symbolically. It's functional descriptions. God's an OT functional description. That's good, Mandy. She happens to be an OT, of course, is what she would say there. Okay. So OT is occupational therapist. They look at people's uh, occupations and their ability to function within their occupations. So that's where their therapy comes from. Uh, olive tree and OT. That's very... Hey! OT and olive tree. Olive trees can teach you a lot about God for that reason. Now... Gethsemane, place of an olive press. We've taught on that. The pressings of the olive is what was going on to Jesus. None of this is by happenstance. It was for a reason. And specifically, it was so that the early Jewish readers would see it and they would understand, wow, he was in the house of the olive press. He was in the place of the olive press. That's where they do certain things. And that's what was happening to him. They would have seen the connection immediately. The same way when they read a scripture that says, I'm an olive tree, a green olive tree in the house of God. They know what that means, but we sit there and scratch our heads. When you're reading the scripture and you're at an a odd place, you don't know what to do, look first at function. Then look at shadow and type. Then look at context. And it'll all start to make sense. We will do this for the rest of our days. I'm probably loaded with enough of this stuff to do one a, a, a week for the next year. Easy. And I love that. That's good. That's, I asked God to stretch me by sending me. And I was confronted with a lot of doctrine that I don't know what to do with. But I tell you what, it's good to come into conflict. It's good, not conflict in a bad way, but it's good to come into contact with people that feel differently than you do, that think differently than you do, that act differently than you do because you grow. Iron sharpening iron does not occur when two people stand next to each other and nothing about them rubs each other. You are supposed to have major differences. And it's, if you're godly, you can have major differences with people and, and it not separates you. You can have major differences and both grow from it. I'm absolutely convinced that some of the things I was taught there is absolutely wrong. And I'm sure they are about me. But I wonder if over time we don't gravitate towards some common ground on some of those areas. You know, you, you find the truth, but you've got to be challenged. One last thing about the olive tree that I got at the end of my study, and then we're going to close. Turn to Genesis 8. If you don't like this, then we need to pray for you to get saved. Wednesday nights are supposed to be little sermonettes. We're not supposed to be serving up the steak more of an appetizer. But this is its fun. I can't help it. Good. We all know the story of Noah. And Noah gets on a big boat. He uh, with seven other people and a couple pairs of animals from all the species of the earth. And the floodwaters recede. And he sends out some birds. 
chapter 8, verse 6. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. Now, I have taught for years what I think the raven is, what I think the dove is, that the olive branch is the remnant of Israel, all of those things, and that's all good. But when you're looking at this, and I'm not diminishing that, this is an end times message that has everything to do with the judgment of God, with the salvation of Israel, Israel being saved. And I can see that, and we'll teach on that again some other time. But when you look at this according to function, what above all else are olive trees? They're tenacious. They're fruitful. They're hard to kill. What is the only thing that is recorded in all of the Bible that survived Noah's flood? An olive tree. Now, if we have a worldwide flood that symbolizes the destruction of mankind, that symbolizes God's judgment upon the whole surface of the earth. Number one, the olive tree didn't get raptured out. Number two, when it was all said and done, you know all that was left standing? The olive tree on the earth. That thing that represents Christians, Jews, and Israel. And I did that in just the opposite order. It really represents Israel and the redemptive plan God gave them and us who've been grafted into it. And it's the only thing that survived God's judgment. Now, come on, that's good stuff. That is good stuff. The bird brought it back to the Father in His mouth. The Holy Spirit went out and gathered His people to the Father. That's good, isn't it? That's good stuff. Anyway, when you begin to study things according to their function, you see a whole new thing in the Word. And... It's important when you face the Scripture to consider this question first. What does it do? Now, since we know that all trees are known according to their function, what's an oak known for? Durability, strength. How about a pine? Maybe fragrance, the fact that it grows quickly. Now you know what an olive tree is known for. Now, you remember the blind man? When his eyes were healed, when Jesus made eyes, he looked around and he said... I see trees as men. Men are also like trees. Jesus also said this. It's Matthew 7. It's what got me saved. He said, every tree is known by its fruit. So what I'm teaching you about function in interpreting the Word is true of how you interpret people's lives, and it's true of how God interprets your life. What are you known by? What you do. See, it's consistent all the way through the Word. You want to be known as an olive tree, not as a china bowl or whatever else. Okay. Mandy wants to know about an acacia tree. I was not prepared for this question. We may even edit it out, but an acacia tree. There are three kinds of acacia trees in Israel. They all have very similar qualities. Number one, 
their roots go very deep down. And here I am being descriptive. Functionally, the way that a acacia tree works is it is deeply rooted in the earth and it finds water source. Second thing that an acacia does, it provides shade to anybody who is there. It has orangish red bark with thorns that is poisonous to animals that want to eat it. And it grows anywhere that there's both the water source and a gentle breeze. It needs the breeze. So, to somebody in the Bible, when they're seeing an acacia tree, what does that mean? I can go sit in the shade. It's going to be like air conditioning. I know there's a gentle breeze. And deep down, there's water there somewhere. And animals won't eat you there. So the Bible uses acacia trees to build things. Why? Why do you think the Bible uses it? Because when you look at what it does, the way that it's armored, what it's for, it's symbolic of a man. We are deeply rooted in the earth. Deep down, our roots go into the earth. We are covered with an orangish bark with thorns. This is an outward facade that is telling everybody, stay away from us. We're tough. We're, if you're a woman, we're pretty. We're glamorous. We're whatever it is, the outward facade. When all of that is stripped off, a beautiful, pure white wood is revealed. God can take His gold and hammer it into you and make an Ark of the Covenant. But you have to be uprooted from the world. You have to be stripped of your bark. And you have to be used for God's purposes. When you look at things according to their function, it makes more sense. wasn't prepared for that question. I hope I did all right. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to close here, and then I'm going to take Judah's question. You have a question still, baby? And, and we are like branches grafted onto that olive tree. And after Jesus, who is the olive tree, sap runs through our branches, we begin to produce the kind of fruit that He wants. Isn't that neat, Judah? I'm going to leave that on the tape for you because you're very smart. Judah asked if Jesus was like an olive tree because He was very fruitful and provided for a lot of people. And then you heard the answer. Yes, He is. And we're grafted into Him, providing the fruit that He wants as His sap runs through us. When you read Romans 11, that will have a whole new light now, won't it? All right. In the name of Jesus, y'all be blessed. Stand up. Let's pray.